Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. I am your host, Mary Catherine Ham. I am here, as always, with my buddy from the Free Beacon, Vic Mattis. Lately coming off the Vic Fest, still recovering, probably. I mean, you need a full week to recover from a full week party. We are your morning show for any hour. We got a lot going on today. We have 2024 news. We have spy balloons, obviously. We have some now it can be told, some righteous now it can be told. And Steve, Steve and I. Sorry, you're not my husband. <laughs> we're husband. Vic and I are going to pile on these kids today. That's what we're going to do. All right, how's it going, Vic? As long as you don't talk, call Steve Vic, I think that's the more that's the, that would be the scarier that's, thing. That's the problem for me. Yeah. For me, <laughs> yes, I am. I am hanging in there, Mary Catherine. Considering I broke my intermittent fast this morning to have a everything bagel with bacon, egg, and cheese. And then I had a, I thought to myself, that's it, then I'm not going to eat till dinner. And of course, I had a chicken salad sub with potato chips. Yeah, once chips. the fast is broken, you might as well. You might as well. You breaking. can't alternate. Yeah, it's not like I can, okay, well, I had breakfast, so I'm not going to skip lunch. It's not that easy, folks. And yeah. as you can see here, there's donuts today in the office. So <laughs> I took two, I don't want to take a whole donut because that would just be gluttonous. I took two half donuts. Yes. Two half donuts. And go. today's today's my son's birthday, so we're going to Five Guys for dinner. I mean, everything's so, going fine. There's I, so much breaking yes. fast. It's like you might as well. It's just breakfast too. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> that's that's a good one. <laughs> and, and I just want our listeners to know that they'll remember this date, February 16, as the day that your co-host got diabetes. <laughs> that's that's really what it is. Got to get but, that Ozempic. It's very in. Yeah, I got it. Very you know, in demand. I, just, I saw that commercial. Even when they tell you about all the different side effects, I think it's worth a try. I need to get it now. Here. That, that, that's right. Mary Catherine, how are you? I'm all right. I have a new baby, as everybody knows, who listens. <laughs> he really likes to sleep on me and not other places. So I'm I'm working on that. Tried to train him up yesterday and put him in the bassinet. And I was like, you stay there. You have space. I have space. I'm sure the gentle parenting folks on Instagram would say that I'm like scarring him and giving him the wrong attachment bond or something. But my girls were, were less needing to be on me all the time. So, so I'm not used to this. Oh. I'm like, I'm like, Oh, you get your spot. But that being said, this is my last baby. And once he's done sleeping on me, I'm going to be like, Oh, my baby. So, you know, you got to soak it oh, up yeah. too. Yeah. And other news. So I, am, I have, I, I had, yeah, go ahead. I have several thoughts, which is one, none of the other girls have decided to go become reverse needy. Like I need you more now because I see with baby. Not really. At least not to too noticeable a degree. Yeah. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty independent kids. We've had a little, I would say we've had more waterworks in the house since the baby was born. And I think that's just like, you know, everybody's adjusting. (laughs) Everybody's adjusting. Oh, okay. Good, good. And then the other thing is, of course, you're mentioning that, you know, well, when this baby, you know, gets older, it'll be the last of this, the last of that. I might have said this on a show before where one day will be your last day at the park. Yeah. And you won't know it. You won't know it at the time. You'll be like, you won't be thinking, okay, this is the end. It'll just be like, oh, we haven't gone there in forever. And then, oh, wait, they're big now. And then you just drive by and you see all these other babies. Oh, in the park. Oh, yeah. It people is. Say it's very, that. I, I, I get emotional like that. Yeah. 
Well, I think back and I can't, the one that got by me was, you know, cause I had the two girls for so long and the second who was my youngest, I don't remember when I stopped carrying her around, you know, sometimes yeah. she, at some point she just hit, you know, 35, 40 pounds and she can do her own thing and I don't need to do it. And all of a sudden one day I was like, Oh, I haven't picked her up in forever. Oh. It just, it just goes I- by the wayside. I love, I love, no, I love, I love carrying kids and babies all the time to the point where they don't want to be carried anymore. You know, you carry the kid and they want to get down, they're wiggling, but you're like, no, I will carry you. I love, yeah, I love that. But at some point, even for me, and I carried them until they were pretty heavy, just to carry around as something to do. At some point, you just can't anymore. Yeah. When I was single mom in it, we did a thing called both babies and I would just pick both of them up at the same time and take them up to bed. And no, that that would be problematic now with those two. But I do it with the younger two. <laughs> yeah, and I joke with my teenagers. I'll try to wrap my arms around both and pretend like, "Hey, kids, you know, <laughs> here we go. I'm, I got gotcha. you." Um, but yeah, so I haven't tried that with the big ones because I think that would go badly. But I am getting back into working out. So, hey, okay, now what me. do you do? What I'm, do you do? How do you ease yourself back into? This? I ease safely. Myself, so, yeah, I attempt to ease myself back in safely using the Peloton because you can do low-key rides you can yes. do short rides so i try to stick to 15 or 20 minutes i try not to do anything too crazy just because i don't feel good when i'm pregnant i can't work out and so i've been on a long hiatus now muscle memory is a thing my muscles do know sort of what they're doing and we're we're getting we're getting back into it but last night i did so i did two days of peloton in a row, row where i think i might have gotten a little too excited about like look at me i'm doing it guys and then last last night I woke up in the middle of the night and was like, I'm going to need some Advil. <laughs> I am definitely, definitely going to need some Advil. And that's you know, by because the, I'm also yeah. sleeping in all sorts of weird positions because the baby wants to sleep on me. So I have to like, you know, be propped up or very careful about where I am. And I'm very hyper aware yes. of my body. And so I'm like, <laughs> my my shoulders are all jacked up. It's a mess over here. So you're sleeping with baby on you still. Well, it depends on the time. Yeah. I tr- like I said, I yeah. tried. I get like half the night with him not on me, and then he's like, yeah. "No, no, ma'am. Once I'm up, <laughs> once I'm up, I'm over here." Okay. First, to go back to the Peloton thing, do they offer an option for like you know, oh, post-pregnancy slow workout to ease you in, or something very light? Saying, uh, assuming you're you know new to this. Well, so yeah, they do have started, they have beginners. beginners and low impact rides, and then. After the, uh, For a while when I was doing Peloton at the beginning, all these instructors, they didn't know nothing about having no babies because they were all fabulous and in their 20s in yeah, Manhattan. Yeah, no, they're okay? fine-tuned machines, yes. But exactly. a couple years later, several of them have had babies. So they do have like pregnancy workouts and postpartum workouts. They have so, these epiphanies like, hey, we should do something for these people. Yeah, for a while it was just like oh, no, we don't know nothing about that. But now oh, that's funny. Now several of them have had babies. So they had those on offer. But the point being, Vic, that I'm trying to build back, but I, th- I think I, I fell apart a little bit last night. You know why I fell apart? Because I'm old. Because I'm old, Vic. Oh. Which leads me oh. to Nikki Haley's 2024 pitch. Hey. <laughs> Everyone is old. And they should listen to a new generation, right? That's right. She announced in Charleston yesterday. Yeah. What did? What did? What are your thoughts, Vic? Well, you know, I just saw her this morning on. She was on Fox and Friends, 
and she was very laser focused. And what I mean by that is she tried to not get into any long-term discussion or in-depth discussion about Donald Trump because that's all anybody wants to ask her about. Right. As you know, the Trump campaign released yesterday, I think it was yesterday, a statement on all the reasons why Haley, Nikki Haley is bad. And rather than dwell on that and that she's going to, you know, the whole thing about her line about standing up to bullies and right. everything else, she wanted to focus on making America strong again is her new, that's her line, not MAGA, but MASA, which is also, I think the name of a very high end restaurant anyway, ah. <laughs> in New York, MASA. And, and also she would, you know, take a tough, a tough a stand, tough stance on China. But here's the interesting thing. As with any of these candidates, especially when they're getting started, no specifics, just right. going to be tough, going to be tough and not so much talk about Trump. And she kept on redirecting the Trump energy to Biden, Right. that this is the man, this is who I'm trying to point out is, does, lacks the competency, cannot do the job. And I'm here because I can do the job. So Which that's is the whole thing is her focus is Biden. Yeah, and and that focus and being think? that focus and being able to turn it is a skill in and of itself. The question, of course, becomes for everyone: When do you sort of unleash on Trump? Because yeah. at some point you have to. But I'm not. I am not convinced that they have to right now. Anyone who wants to run doesn't have to do it right this second. If I can play this, we'll hear a little bit from her kickoff rally in Charleston. We'll have term limits for Congress. and mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. So I think I think she's at her best when she's got a little bit of that southern lady sass. That's that's the that's the the killer app for for Nikki Haley. But she says she goes on to say America's not past our prime, it's just that our politicians are past theirs. We won't win the fight for the 21st century if we keep trusting politicians from the 20th century. She went on to say that perhaps there should be some competency tests for lawmakers over 75 years old. We have had some some recent indications that various older politicians are not maybe doing the job at the toppest, toppest level at this point. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're making a reference to Dianne Feinstein, Yes, perhaps, we have both, both Feinstein and, I mean, I think we see evidence that Biden's not really doing yeah. great all every day. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And so, look, I I think this pitch of, look, I have some domestic chops and some foreign policy chops. And by the way, these guys are old losers and old news, I think is a pretty good couching of the of the pitch because. Well, I yeah, they are old. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if, if, if we're looking at a battle between Biden and Trump, you know, part two. You know, is everyone's, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there asking, isn't there somebody not in their late 70s and early right. 80s? Or, right. You know, you know, certainly if, if, if Trump, you know, were to become president again, he'd be president into his 80s. And obviously we, you know, Biden is 80 now. It's funny, you know, having turned 50, I'm thinking ahead to the next 10 to 15 years about what am I going to do when I retire? Like, how can I ease myself out of this full time job? In the next 10 to 15 years, I am not thinking 30 years from now, I want the toughest job in the world. I want the crappiest, hardest job and, in the world. Yeah, yeah. The, the most thankless, crappiest I, job. I was the telling huge, the biggest responsibilities. Yeah, I was telling my children yesterday, and I'm sure they'll repeat it at school. 
that being president's a terrible job. I was like, the job you want is vice president because then you oh, get to do easily. the speeches and the glad handing, but nobody really cares what you're doing that much and you get a better house. And they're like, better than the White House? And I was like, yes, better <laughs> than the White House. Yeah, it's tucked right. away in D.C. It has Less a pool intrusive. outside. It's just beautifully landscaped and idyllic. It's just a lovely place. Yeah, so- you, you could basically walk from there to two Amy's Pizza. The most important feature, yeah. Really, really the key, right? (laughs) No, I I agree. I I, vice president and and, and ambassador to a really not stressful post. Yes. So that's even better. Yeah. I would definitely. I would take ambassador to Austria. Germany is a lot of pressure. Berlin is great, but a lot of pressure. I would take Vienna. You go to the opera. I like it. You eat a lot of schnitzel. You know what? This is your chance to pitch the Nikki Haley administration. Oh, yeah. I mean, Please, I if think, anyone's listening, I'm ready. Again, I think the she has a rationale that others who say they w- might want to run don't have. However, as as we have talked about many times, if the field is split, the non-Trump vote is split. And I think, yes, it's likely that Nikki Haley and DeSantis are taking more votes from each other than from Trump or that, you know, that the the result is not great if yeah. they're splitting them even between just those two. Right. And I think some early polling from South Carolina reflects that. At any rate, the uh, she's she's kicked it off. The knives are out. You note you noted from Trump, who's like, she said she wasn't going to run against me, which is probably the yes. thing he's most mad about. But there's also the, as there always is, whenever there's a Republican person of color or a woman, and in this case, both, the these sexist and racist knives are out from our friends on the left and some in the media. A particularly egregious attack line this morning from Don Lemon on CNN's morning show. This whole talk about AIDS makes me uncomfortable. I think that I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and Maybe 40s. What do you that's talk? Not acor- Wait. I, that's not according to me. Prime for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll. If you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't necessarily. 40s. Oh, I got another. I'm not decade. saying I agree with that. So I think she has to be careful about saying that you know politicians aren't in their I think prime. You need, need to qualify. To are you talking about prime for like childbearing, or are you talking about prime for being president? What the facts are? Google it. Everybody at home. When is a woman in her prime? It says 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime. Someone finish him. One of you ladies. I, okay, so I, I mean, I, I didn't, I can't see the video. I'm assuming that was Danabash's voice. No, saying, uh, he is Hold on, on now. No, no, no. He is on with his two regular, permanent oh. female co hosts, Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins. And Poppy rightly is pushing back on this because he is, he digs himself an even deeper hole because he is literally saying that her physical slash maybe childbearing prime is- Is way, decades gone. Well, and is also the most important qualification for her to run for president, which is a real tricky situation for ladies because if she were in her 30s or early 40s, she would be too young and inexperienced. Right. to run for president. But now that she's in her 50s, she's quote unquote past her prime, according to Don Lemon, while Joe Biden is putting, braining it up over here. What did he mean by that then? What is he, what is Don Lemon trying to say? Here's what I, uh, here's what I yeah. think. I think that he thought that saying something incredibly crappy 
and sexist and misogynist about a Republican woman would be a okay, and no one would blink an eye because normally they don't really. No. This right. one happened to be far enough out there <laughs> that the women on set are like, wait a second. Now, I would have been like, wait a second, much louder than this. Yeah. <laughs> but a real bad step. And in an, a, a ridiculous critique of Nikki Haley, feel free to go after her politics. This yeah. is ridiculous. Well, it's like they have. Oh, to by the way, he's five years. Yeah. He's five years older than she is. <laughs> well, it's different because he's a guy, as you know. That's. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. No. The idea that a, a woman in her fifties is past her prime to run for president. Yeah, uh, she got nothing wants, to offer, Vic. <laughs> he was. He was trying to say that, I guess, because you know, you know, yeah, Trump and Biden are old, but that she's no spring chicken either. Yeah, but but, but it's not true. Yeah, but, <laughs> Like, well, I mean, and, and so you're expecting somebody in their 30s to run for president? Exactly. Is that what he wants? Exa Again, it makes I, no sense, except for he must go after her. So he did. That's that's what I think it was. He's like, I'm just going to say a mean thing about her and it's going to be fine. Also, and, you know, I don't want to get dragged into the dirt and be talking about her looks as well, because that's not the most important thing. But the woman was wearing a white suit. You can't wear a white suit unless you're hot to start with. OK, let me just educate everybody. <laughs> successful, uh, that, I don't... successful wearing of a hot suit. Of a white suit requires being, well, maybe in your prime. Maybe that's what I'm saying. So, well, you know, what surprises me is that, that, you know, Trump's, so we were talking about Trump's attack on Nikki Haley. And, and one of the things was, of course, that, you know, she promised not to run against me. But the other thing is to tie into this thing that Don Lemon says, I'm surprised he's not accusing her of ageism. Right? Right. Because he should be able to say, hey, you know, like Reagan said, I guess, to Mondale, you know, in 84, that he wasn't going to exploit for political purposes, you know, my opponent's agent and experience. Right? Right. And that's something that was so that fantastic. Could, Such a great line. Could, it's something that he could do. In fact, and the Fox and Friends clip that she appeared in this morning, she was asked by Ainsley Earnhardt about competency test for President Trump and how Trump would do. And she said he would he would do well. So yeah. she wasn't really going after Trump and competence so much as that was meant for Biden. Look, I think it's yeah. a I think it's a real thing that you can talk about and you should talk about it in a smart yeah. way, which I think she's doing and she's making a contrast. I think that, you know, a lot of people want the thrill of a personal attack on her. So that's what that was. There's also the issue that everybody's like all the all the very, very tolerant liberals who are like, Nikki's not even her real name. Oh man, she goes like on by the view. she goes by Nikki to pretend that she's not a woman of color. Okay, it's not a secret that she's a woman of color, guys. It's not a secret. Everyone knows, and Nikki is her name along with Nimrata. They're both her names. Mm -hmm. It's it's amazing how blatant they are. As long as the right, target this is on the right, this isn't Pat Noriyuki Morita. <laughs> The karate. It used to be Pat Marita, and then they stuck in the Noriyuki because he got more in touch with sort of his his, his Japanese background. So but also, it's hard it's, for it's, Democrats. It's, it's hard for Democrats or or Don Lemon or whomever to make the argument that you can't talk about age because a bunch of senior Democrats are talking about age off the record about yeah. Biden. They just won't put their names on it. This is Jonathan Martin reporting for Politico. High-level Democrats are rallying to President Biden's re-election, not because they think it's in the best interest of the country to have an 82-year-old start a second term, but because they fear the potential alternative, the nomination of Kamala Harris and election of Donald Trump. Not that many of them will say it publicly, at least not that directly. 
quote, nobody wants to be the one to do something that would undermine the chances of a Democratic victory in 2024. Dean Phillips, Democrat of Minnesota. Good job, Dean, for putting your name on the record. Yet in quiet rooms, the conversation is just the opposite. We could be at higher risk if this path is cleared. So they're worried about Biden's age, but they're worried about Kamala's, well, gestures to everything. <laughs> they put themselves in this bind. Yes. You know, and Biden certainly put himself in this bind by naming Kamala Harris because he felt he needed to have her. Right. And oftentimes presidential candidates will do this where they overcompensate or they overthink who they need to match them in there, you know, to balance out the balance out the ticket one re for one reason or another. So they have to deal with this. And the top two people at the on the top at the Democratic Party uh, are both people that the rest of the country do not want. Right. And, and who, are, argument, and, and who yeah. are not good at being politicians. No, they're terrible. They're very bad and, at and it. The only argument you can make is Trump versus Biden, Trump versus Harris, that the some, they, they, either of them could beat Trump, right? That Trump is so unlikable, you're willing to go with Kamala Harris or another four years of Joe Biden. That's how crazy it is. But other than that, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. And but they have no other. What, what are they going to resort to? That that's it. As you mentioned, they're afraid to criticize him openly, and they're afraid to criticize Kamala Harris openly because they're afraid of being branded racist, misogynist, or both. And that, I think that's also in the story. Oh, well, and this is again, this is what they've built for themselves: is that by their standard, ousting a historic vice presidential oh. pick from the yeah. sort of line of secession here would amount to just straight up racism and sexism. Now. Again, as I noted, they can be straight up racist and sexist to Nikki Haley, but that's yeah. okay because she's on the right. It's harder to do it when it's your own person. And by their own rules, clearing the way for or clearing the way for her would be or clearing her out of the way would be tricky for them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah again, and, and they've done this to other Republicans who happen to, you know, be other you know, minorities, Tim Scott, for example, when he gave a fantastic Republican response to the State of the Union, he was attacked for not being black. Oh, really? Even though he is. <laughs> so it, it's just the shamelessness knows yes, no yes. bounds. It, every time, it, it, I shouldn't be surprised, but I tend to always be surprised <laughs> by just how, just how blatant it gets. It's like, wow, yeah. wow, that's okay. Well, it, it, it's because you're, you know, you you're trying to have high hopes and be optimistic for the state of our country and our media, Mary Catherine, and we just keep on letting you down. I know, and you know what? The media is letting us down, and there's yeah. polling mm -hmm. proof of it, Vic. This is in the AP, which is very disappointed to report this. Half of Americans in a recent survey indicated they believe national news organizations intend to mislead, misinform, or persuade the public to adopt a particular point of view. Through their reporting, the survey released Wednesday by Gallup and the Knight Foundation goes beyond others that have shown a low, a low level of trust in the media to the startling point where many believe there is an intent to deceive. Only 25% only agreed that national news organizations do not intend to mislead. <laughs> Similarly, 52% disagreed with the statement that disseminators of national news, quote, care about the best interests of their readers, viewers, and listeners, the study found. 23% of respondents believed the journalists were acting in the public's best interest. Those numbers are dismal. They are bad. Yes. First of all, mission accomplished Fox News, because I think that's what the, that's what the gist of the, the report is. Now, you know, if when you read that story, the tone of it, it seems like they're equal parts baffled and disappointed. 
Yes. You know, because they don't understand. And the American public let them down. Yes. But that's luckily, what always the, happens the, with us. We are such a bad yeah. public. <laughs> yeah. With the exception, again, if you break it down by party, Democrats are much more trusting with whatever we say and accepting of it, you right. know? But again, they tend to think that disinformation is a one-way street. Yes. And they seem to forget everything from, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop yes. being Russian disinformation to, you know, the latest breathless developments in the Mueller report. Remember that? Right, when it was right. all about the Mueller report. This is going to be it. You yeah. know, he, he, we've got the goods. The tax records. Once we release, we're going oh, yeah, Cong to force Congress. We're going to force Congress. Congress is going to force the president to turn over those tax. Then we're going to find out the whole truth about all that. Oh, wait, nothing happened. Okay. Yeah. And we just. They just continue on the P tape. I wouldn't have to get into those details. Remember that, <laughs> you know, Russia well, luckily collusion. it doesn't exist. I mean, you so you it. don't have to get. Yeah, into the I mean, but that's the thing. But we spent so much time. I remember coverage on MSNBC about Michael Cohen. Remember Michael Cohen? Oh, the President most trustworthy Trump's. man in America as long most as he was talking about Trump. Yeah. And he said they he he was going to have he was going to tell us about how President Trump used the N word. Oh, and it might man. even be on tape. Let's everybody. This is it. We're waiting that, you know, and, like, and this oh. is the thing. And they do not understand this. The misinformation is coming from inside the house, guys. <laughs> is that the babysitter reference? Yes, it's like, coming from inside the house yeah, yeah. and you are part of it. And that is why people don't trust you. And I have at my fingertips here, Vic, a couple of yes. very, very good. Now it can be told. That All I want right. to bring to everybody's attention. Yeah. So the first one is, and you you made some note of some of them. So here's the first one. This is a story from last week, February 10th in the New York Times. Fetterman, uh, senator from Pennsylvania, newly elected, recovering after stroke, labors to adjust to life in the Senate. And I just want to read you a little bit about this. First of all, we wish him the best because he was hospitalized last week. And I am always hopeful for his full recovery. But let's talk about how the media covered the stroke and is now covering Fetterman's performance in office. His adjustment to serving in the Senate has been made vastly more difficult by the strains of his recovery, which left him with a physical impairment and serious mental health challenges that have rendered the transition extraordinarily challenging, even with the accommodations that have been made to help him adapt. And the quote here is, what you're supposed to do to recover from this is to do as little as possible, said Adam Gentleson, his chief of staff. Instead, Mr. Fetterman, quote, was forced to do as much as possible. He had to get back to the campaign trail. It's hard to claw that back. Huh. I seem to remember noting that, Vic, you and I, and anyone else who had basic common yeah. sense was like, mm, this looks like maybe not a great idea. It goes on. The latest health scare convinced his staff that Mr. Fetterman needs a better plan to take care of himself, both physically and emotionally. He declined to be interviewed for this story, but aides and confidants describe his introduction to the Senate as a difficult period filled with unfamiliar duties that are taxing for someone still in recovery. Meetings with constituents, attending caucus and committee meetings, appearing in public at White House events and at the State of the Union address, as well as making appearances in Pennsylvania. That's the whole job. And that was the argument pre-election. Now, the people of Pennsylvania chose him, but the argument pre-election was Maybe this will affect his ability to do the jobs that are required in office. But to suggest that would be ableist of you, Mary Catherine. Well, and that was the argument at the time. But now it can be told, you see, because he's yes. already in. Safely ensconced the for the next Senate. six years. So, six. So, yes, he was not forthcoming about his condition. His doctor wasn't forthcoming about his condition. They argued that it was just 
a, a hearing cognition issue, more of a you know physical disability than anything else. And it's pretty clear that that's not what's going on here. He, it says at its worst, it sounds like to him, he's trying to decipher like Peanuts characters' voices. Yes, sounds like, like the, a trumpet. Like the adults in Peanuts. And that's a quote from the people in his office yeah. talking about this. Yeah. Um, now, I just want to go back quickly to how the New York Times covered him right before the election and after the debate where he had that sort of concerning performance. Here's a report. Mr. Fetterman came across as high energy and forceful at times, but uneven in crisp crispness and fluency. And then we have Mr. Fetterman also often sounded clear and relaxed during a Friday conversation with Representative so-and-so. It's all just pushing this idea that everything is A-OK. -okay. And then as soon as he's in office, everything's not A-OK, -okay, it turns out. And maybe we shouldn't have attacked, oh, I don't know, the reporter who admitted as much while she was on the trail to, to interview him. Dasha Burns of NBC, that was, by the way. That's right. Yeah, so, that's right. With, with Dasha Burns, if you remember, Mrs. Fetterman said she needed to face consequences. Yes, she needed to apologize. She was being ableist. It was not okay to point this out. The New York Times also covered him and his debating skills after that debate, saying Fetterman was an uneven debater even before his stroke in May. So like, it doesn't have anything to do with that, except that it did, right? <laughs> it yeah. did. And so now they can talk about it, but before they could not. And by the way, woe betide you if you're not properly sympathetic to his struggles, which by the way, were made worse by his wife and doctor and entire staff and him deciding that he should gut it out during a campaign. Yeah. That's right. As, as To paraphrase Tom Hagen from Godfather Part Two, Fetterman played this one beautifully because they knew, the, the, the Fetterman campaign and his wife knew they would probably get some cover from the media on this, right? And so when the primary happened, they were able to you know, keep under wraps the severity of the stroke. And then even after you know, it was revealed that he had a stroke, the media was very gentle about this coverage and concern with the, with the exception of Dasha Burns, as you, you just mentioned. The wife called it, I believe, a health hiccup, yes. is what she said. And, the, and then demanding that there be consequences for Dasha Burns for saying, hey, this might be a problem. You would expect, again, when a politician or a politician's spouse goes after a member of the media for simply asking questions, that the rest of the media would come to their colleague's side and say she's just doing her job. This is what she's supposed to do is ask questions. But no, nope. they it abandoned was a pile her. On. It was a, it was a, it was pile, a pile on. on. I mean, they, they came after no. her. There was story after story just like, you know, harvesting tweets to say that, oh, look at look at how angry everyone is at yeah. Dasha Burns. Well, they shouldn't be angry at Dasha Burns. There's a quote in the most recent New York Times piece that says he, they frame it as this is his this is part of his struggle now is that he has had to come to terms with the fact that he may have set himself back permanently by not taking the recommended amount of rest during the campaign. And he continues to push himself in ways that people close to him worry are detrimental. Detrimental is the operative word here because, you know, people were suggesting that perhaps if you are somehow mentally, mentally impaired, that you might not be able to fully serve in the Senate and you get attacked for saying that. But again, this is not just an auditory issue. It's not a matter of saying, you know, somebody with a hearing aid should not serve in the Senate. It would probably be a lot of senators. But saying that there's something deeper that is wrong and that he needs to tend to that right. before anything else. 
Well, and, then- and focus on his health. And he's, he was not well. We saw that in the debate. Yeah. Which also, by the way, tells you how bad the opponent was that he couldn't, oh, yes. that he still, regardless. No, 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 yeah. no, no excuses made for that because, yeah. <laughs> and look, I do think a lot of people probably were like, oh, he's, he's struggling, but you know, he believes in the things I believe. And, and so that's fine. Yeah. And I believe he can make a comeback. But one of the reasons mm-hmm. that they were sold on the comeback is because that's the, what the press was selling. Yeah. And talking right. about his actual his actual issues was deemed insensitive and bad and again i wish him the best and i would like him to fully recover and that was one of the things we talked about at the time but again it couldn't be told then now it can be told and we have another yeah. one we got another one this is a this is a humdinger what, what else do we of got a now it can be told this is from the free beacon james clapper says politico <laughs> quote deliberately distorted letter that flagged Hunter laptop as Russian disinfo former director of national intelligence. James Clapper said Politico deliberately distorted his letter from him and other intelligence officials. You guys remember that one with the 51 officials that falsely alleged emails obtained from Hunter Biden's laptop have the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Quote, there was message distortion. Clapper said in an interview with the Washington post, all we were doing was raising a yellow flag that this could be Russian disinformation. Politico deliberately distorted what we said. It was clear in paragraph five. He is lying. Well, he's yeah. lying. He's a bit telling a big old lie. That's that's what he's doing. The thing is, Mary Catherine, I, I, I really do think now in 2023, we can safely say that after careful review by the media, the Hunter laptop is in fact Hunter's laptop. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it did take three <laughs> years to come to, to, to well, almost three years to come to, to this conclusion. And so now even James Clapper has to somehow admit, okay, it really is his. And the way he's doing it is by saying, you know, I didn't outright say right. it was not the laptop. I'm just saying we were concerned. Me so, and Jeremy Bash at MSNBC were all just, we signed a letter saying we're concerned. That's all. So I went back to review the letter uh, and it is, it goes, it goes hard on <laughs> Russian disinformation, right? He's correct that there's one paragraph that's like, I don't know, maybe we don't know for sure. But then he said, then there's an italicized declaration. If we are right, this is Russia trying to influence how Americans vote in this election. And we believe strongly that Americans need to be aware of this. Here are a number of factors that make us suspicious of Russian involvement. And then an entire page of ways that they think this reflects Russian involvement. It, of course, did not. Then there's the Politico story he is he is referring to. The headline is Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. Dozens of former Intel officials say, and I want to read you the quote that came along when the guy handed it over. Nick Shapiro, a former top aide under CIA director John Brennan, provided Politico with the letter on Monday. He noted that the IC leaders who have signed this letter worked for the past four presidents, including Trump. The real power here, however, is the number of former working level IC officers who want the American people to know that once again, the Russians are interfering. That is the guy they sanctioned to hand the letter to Politico saying that this is what this is. Please stop trying to tell me about your yellow flag two years later, because there was not a yellow flag. It was a red flag and it was meant to be. And all these people oh, clever. get to, you know, wave around their credentials as our intelligence experts and authorities, people that we look up to because they served in very big government posts. Therefore, we need mm-hmm. to take them at their word. They have a lot of credibility. 
And now, at least for us, we know the credibility is shot. It's just the same. It's the same thing with all the Nobel economists that President Biden cited as, you know, assuring us, you know, two years ago that the economy is going to be great and there's not going to be any inflation and everything is going well. You know, I mean, yep. the economists say so. <laughs> These people. It's by the worthless. way, it is worth their opinions are now worthless. By the way, you should not be surprised that Clapper is doing this because he, of course, lied under oath to Congress when he was asked yeah. many years ago about the NSA's surveillance data that it was collecting on American citizens. You don't have to believe me on that. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, Democrat, has been coming after Clapper for years on this. Clapper says it was just an honest mistake that he said. They weren't surveilling Americans when they were, but I was always at pains to point this out when I was at CNN, whenever we were talking about Clapper being the arbiter of uh, public honesty and trust. And I was like, well, you know, he did lie under oath to Congress. And then I would get the evil eye because we're not supposed to, not supposed to question Mr. Clapper, even though he's given us reason to question him. It's the same thing. It's the same thing with John Brennan. And it's the same thing with you know, in the Justice Department, Andrew McCabe and Peter Strzok, all these people, you know, who now have these very fancy gigs on networks, doesn't matter that they lied. I'm just going to move on. So now, anyway. now it can be told. And one last, now it can be told. Just to give you guys just, a, uh, just an overview of why it might be that people think at a level of 50% that the press is looking to deceive us. The Columbia Journalism Review, no right-wing outlet. This is a like professional journalists outlet that reports on journalism and runs symposia about journalism, ran a piece like two weeks ago by Jeff Gerth, a longtime investigative reporter at the New York Times called The Press Versus the President. It is four parts long. It is many thousands of words. I commend it to you just when you have the time to read it because it gives a real clear forensic look at all the stories that you've probably forgotten about over the years that piled up together to make the Russia narrative about Trump. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh, these are all the news stories that I commented on for three and a half, four years and was like, guys, I don't think this is what you think it is. And it just seems like pretty iffy to me and pretty soft. And they were all like, you're crazy. He's going to be out of office any day. But if you read this story, it turns out, Basically, all those stories were nonsense, as I was pointing out as we were going through it in real time, although I didn't quite conceive of how nonsense some of them were, because some of them were really, really nothing and or completely fabricated in pretty amazing ways. So it's CJR is the place where you can read that. It's called The Press Versus the President, and it's too long for me to pick apart for you guys, but it is a fantastic piece to read after all these years, and it's good to see it somewhere that's not a right-leaning publication. That's right. You know, basically the media just fed into its own narrative and it goes into a circle where they're all reinforcing each other, but no one's actually asking the actual tough questions about, is this true or is it not? And the end result was it convinced enough of Congress to impeach the president the first time on something that was pretty flimsy. So, yes, And was seeded by... Hillary Clinton and the yeah. FBI working together to push this thing. Spoon-fed to the media. I, this is it's what's remarkable. But, but as you mentioned, this is you know Columbia Journalism Review, yet at the same time, you don't really hear a lot of people outside of that saying, you know, we need to uh, take a look at ourselves in the mirror here. A, a moment no, for self-reflection. I think Bob Woodward 
put his two cents in on this, saying that this was yes, bad. Yes, Bob Woodward of The Post told me that the news coverage of the Russia inquiry, quote, wasn't handled well and that he thought viewers and readers had been, quote, cheated. He urged newsrooms to, quote, walk down the painful road of introspection. I wish, Bob Woodward, I wish. But since this, yeah. yeah, since this story has come out, there's been almost no talk about it in media. They're just like, that doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Because reckoning with this would be very painful. And a lot of people were really, really wrong about a lot of things that had really big implications, but they liked those implications. So it's okay. That's right. And oh. they're in a position where they're getting paid lots of money to prognosticate and to admit that your prognostication was outright wrong or a lie might affect that. And so why would they do that? So for a, for a short, we for are. a too long, for a too long, didn't read of that 20,000 word piece, mm-hmm. you can go to my YouTube channel, MK Hammer, and you can find a clip reel that's called Mary Catherine Ham Disagrees. <laughs> and it's just me for years talking on panels on CNN going, I don't think so, man. This, nope, mm-mm. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. <laughs> so you can find that <laughs> if you want the short version. You know, the good thing is now that the piece is out, they're probably all, everyone else on the panel is probably the first thing they're going to think of is, you know what? Mary Catherine was right. Oh, I took a victory lap when the Mueller report came out. And yeah. like, not, not that it was like a great and enjoyable day, but I was like, hey, y'all seem kind of sad that we just found out that the president wasn't a Russian plant. Why is everyone right. so was sad? It, shouldn't you be happy? Yeah, I feel like this is good news, right? Yeah. Right, everyone? <laughs> it do you, wasn't to some. Do you remember the story <laughs> about the woman who created the Robert Mueller altar, including, oh you know, gosh. candles? you know, and everything else to Robert Mueller. I mean, it, it was really crazy. This is one thing I will never understand. And this is my libertarian streak. Like I just, I don't fall in love with public figures and no. politicians. I, I would say, you know, Paul Ryan's a bit of a looker, so that helps. I like him. I'm a big fan of Paul Ryan. <laughs> but like, but it's sort of yeah. lighthearted. Like I'm just, I've never been a person who's like, mm-hmm. wow, I need a couch pillow that has yeah. Anthony Fauci's face on it. Yeah. I don't need that. Because that stuff is also real. It's a People are real into that. I find that strange. Yeah. I, that's I, that's why I was never attracted to the whole Obama thing. I was sort of creeped out by everybody's overly emotional reaction to him. Not like as a historical figure, I understood it and that, that was inspiring, but it got very emotional and very, there was a lot of iconography. Oh yeah, <laughs> of Obama. There was a, there was a, there was an Obama store on M Street in Georgetown that was really quite something else. And also, if I'm not mistaken, there was like a it might have I could be completely wrong on this. Maybe it wasn't Jeff Zucker on MS on NBC, but some other network big executive had put together a a choir of children singing Obama, like they had a song oh about him. Yeah. So oh anyway, what could go wrong? You know. If they could have made a Macy's Day balloon out of him, they would have. Speaking hey, of balloons, there we go. let's do a quick update on the spy balloons. This is the New York Times reporting. Senior American officials increasingly believe the Chinese spy balloon that was shot down off the coast of South Carolina in early February was originally supposed to conduct surveillance over U.S. military bases in Guam and Hawaii, but winds carried it off course to Alaska, Canada, and finally the continental United States. This is me, but where it just happened to float over a bunch of Top secret military installations, but okay. The evolution of Washington's understanding of the Chinese military's original goals and new details that reveal 
misreadings of the U.S. reaction by Chinese officials in private meetings reflect how difficult it is for the United States and China to discern each other's intentions, a gap that American officials fear could lead to greater mistrust in an already fraught relationship or even to armed conflict. In another example of the fog created by superpower rivalry and political imperatives, U.S. officials said in interviews on Wednesday that they now increasingly believe three unidentified flying objects shot down over North America were unlikely to be surveillance devices. So I guess, how much did it cost to shoot those guys down? Like a million bucks? <laughs> yes, that's that's right. It's like $400,000 per Sidewinder missile. And I think the one of them, the, the, the first missile missed. So I don't know what happened. Oh. But yeah, and the, the president just spoke and basically confirmed that, you know, the first one was in fact this Chinese surveillance balloon. They're looking into it, but the other ones were not a threat. So basically at this point, anything that floats our way, we're going to shoot down, you know, weather balloon or otherwise. I don't know whose balloons those, they who, you know, own those balloons. But yeah, that's the situation. What we do know is that the U.S., as you just mentioned, monitored that first balloon, well, technically the first balloon that we know of's launch from Hainan right. Island. Hainan is, it's not the nice... Chinese island, right? This is not Macau okay. with all the casinos. You might end up right. in the wrong island. You want to make sure you go to Macau, not Hainan. Hainan. Good so, travel tips. Travel tips with Vic. <laughs> that's right. Very different. There's no Venetian there. So the in Hainan Island, that is, by the way, the high, the island where we had that EP three spy plane that collided with the Chinese J eight fighter back in two thousand one, and then right. we had to get our crew out of there, and that was a very Awkward diplomatic entanglement, but same island. And as you were saying, we think that the balloon was designed to go over Guam and Hawaii to monitor military naval intelligence activities. That tells me two things. One, maybe they've done that before and we just let it slide. But two, why over Guam and Hawaii? And that tells me they want to know what our situation is in the event of an invasion of Taiwan. Call me crazy. But yeah. that's what I think is going well, on, and and, may, and if it blew off course, yeah, I, I'll even I'll even give them the benefit of the doubt and say it blew off course. But the fact is, we let it go all the way across the country before we decided to take it down. Well, yeah, and there seems to be a lot of credulity in this reporting about the version of the story that says, "Oh, it was off course. They weren't really trying to collect anything. However, it did have a self-destruct mechanism, which we did find intact, and they decided not to self-destruct it until." until after we had shot it down. And perhaps that was because they were collecting data, but also we were totally thwarting them and not letting them collect data. And I'm like, really, guys? Am I supposed to buy all of that? That's... I mean, I we have yeah. a crisis of competence and a crisis of trust, and I, I don't know what to believe about this. You know, I'm, but like, yeah. I made a joke. Yeah. I made a joke about it on the last episode saying it had a self-destruct button and like an imperial, imperial probe from oh, Empire well, Strikes Back. I was right. You were right. See, always only trust us. That's what we're saying. There's a good chance only the empire knows we're here. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that's what's going on with the balloons. That's but depressing. Again, how how many days did it take? We had we had several essentially we had we had airspace closed, we had military yeah. jets scrambled, we had military engagements for all we knew of targets over the lower 48 several times and Alaska, several times. And the president just spoke about it today. That, that's right. And on a funny note, sad but funny, one of the descriptions of the devices that was shot down, they said was about the size, it was a small one, they said it was about the size of a car, to which Chris Scalia on Twitter, 
had replied, rest in peace, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. So no. the car, <laughs> the flying car. That's a, that's a timely reference. I'm, you know you know who would love that reference? Gen Z. Let's talk yeah. about them. All right, here we go. Look, we're going to be very these kids today, but we got to get into this real quick. This is in the Washington Post. Uh, when Madison Core was 18 years old and in her first year of college, she started the process of getting a driver's license. Core, who was living in New York at the time, got an adult learner's permit, did drug and alcohol training, and put in 10 to 15 hours behind the wheel and attending driver's ed classes. But when it came time to schedule a road test to get her license, she simply didn't. I just felt like I didn't need it, she said. Now 24, she lives in Philadelphia and still doesn't have a license. My parents put a lot of pressure on me to get one, she said, but I haven't needed one to this point. If there's an emergency... I'll call an Uber or nine one one. The kids, you know, the kids, I, they're I not driving. Thi- I was just thinking about this. No, I, you know, I, I wasn't feeling myself. I felt like I had a little bit of a stomach ache, and the surge prices for Uber were kind of high, so I just called an ambulance. <laughs> that's that's what I did. Mary Catherine, is is self reliance dead? Is this what's happening here? Nobody wants to be able to do anything on their own anymore because we're all. And you had said this. We're, instead of going out, right? Instead of instead of going right. out on driving out on Route 66 or not I 66, but Route 66 or Skyline Drive here locally. Instead, we are going to go into the internet and everything can just come to us. Right. I mean, the Zoomers are just zooming. <laughs> it's like not not in a car, not on the Pacific Coast Highway, just on the Zoom. But they. They cite, okay, let me give you the the stats real quick. In 1997, which is around the time I got my license, 43% of 16-year-olds had licenses. In 2020, those numbers had fallen to 25% of 16-year-olds have licenses. It goes up a little bit as they get older, but they're definitely lagging behind millennials who were already behind the generation before them. I love to drive, so I'm, I'm biased in that way. So note it down, everyone. But I just think this is such a coming of age thing and it's such an expression of independence and they, the, the Gen Z, the Zoomers tell, tell reporters and others and researchers their reasons include cost and climate. Cost I get, climate, eh, whatever, but. Somebody else is cost driving. And climate. I mean, if you should. But you know what, but you know, I know, you know what the number one reason cited in this story is? Laziness. Is fear. No, fear. No, fear. 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 Fear of yes. like being on the road, it's taking the driver's test, of having of having accidents. Yes, and what struck me about this is that this is the trade that the pandemic caused, and this is the yep. trade that was actually ramping up before the pandemic with helicopter right. parenting, which is which is deprive your children of in real life life and let them live on the internet in exchange for just tiny increases in their physical safety. Yeah. If, if even perceptible increases in their physical safety, I think it's mostly an illusion. But if you trade your kids' emotional health and well-being for these mm-hmm. tiny, tiny little gains in physical safety, it will go badly. And the data is showing us that it goes badly. So like a car is is the exact opposite of that. A car yeah. is an expression that I am willing to go out in the world and see things. Do you remember... The first time you drove alone in a car, what was that like? Oh yeah, it was it was scary and thrilling. My parents had a Mazda Protege. Do you remember those? Oh no, I, I you know the RX-7 I remember, but not the Protege. 
my mom that my mom had a Mazda protege, which was just a little sedan in in the way of early '90s cars or late '80s cars, very small, very compact, and it was a stick shift. My father insisted that we oh, learn on a manual, oh, all of us. I'm so, I'm and impressed. it was it was a very zippy little car. It had a lot of get up and go, mm-hmm. and it was a little nerve wracking when you were learning because you're revving it and you're trying to get the the clutch to engage. Gen Z, if they're listening, has no idea what a clutch is. You're trying to get the clutch to engage, and you're like really taking off sometimes, and you're bucking. So it, it took a while to, to get the hang of. And then I had a 68 Bug, which as stick shifts go, is rather hard to wrangle as well. But I drove through my neighborhood one time by myself just to to give it a try. And I, I actually, I actually went like one wrong turn and was like so nervous trying to get back home that I was, I was having trouble getting home to my own house. And it wasn't because I didn't know where my house was. It was just like freaking out. I wanted to make, I wanted to make sure I was on the right street and going the right way. And I was so nervous. Well, I mean, that that's the thing is you, there are so many things that are now sort of built into our brains when you drive in terms of, you know, visually where are you looking yeah. and, and and you know all the various visual cues how you're looking you know a further distance than right up front and just the, the way everything is and your habits about signaling and turning and when to ease the brake and 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 those things have to be learned and they're not now all these people yeah. are just giving this up and i remember the first time i drove alone i went to get a haircut and when i got to the place my mother called the place to make sure i <laughs> I yes. got there, but she, but she did this to my sister as well, who is three years older. But the, the the worst thing was my sister actually the first place she drove alone was to a pizza hut, and suddenly you know the hostess is there looking for my sister, like is there a Christine <laughs> Mattis here? You know, it's kind of embarrassing. So. Your mom called to check on you. Yeah, no, that's um, what it was. Lots of laughs. Lots by the way, laughs. much much like a clutch, we have to explain to Gen Z that that meant that your mother picked up a corded telephone. Yes, and called the local pizza hut. She called it. And I had a cell phone. And talked to a, ra- a stranger, right, a stranger. Who, then, <laughs> who then went to go find her Right, daughter. and had to get the number from the Pizza Hut, probably from the phone book, you know. From and the then, phone and, book. And that's how, the, that's how these things worked. I, I do want to say, we, and you know, we, you talk about, you know, the pandemic and what it did to everybody. And, and the other thing is we enable this. It's not just Uber, but, you know, with delivery services like DoorDash and groceries right. that can be brought to your home, you never have. And you can work remotely. And you could do telehealth checkups. You basically never have to leave your house again. Is that a good idea? Right, and that well, that's the thing. That's what saying. That's what Gen Z is saying. Like you know, all the stuff I need is right on my phone or my computer. Yeah. But the downside of that is that your your mental health is going to suffer. And there were actually several stories about this this week. But the CDC reports released a report, and we will end on this. Now it can be told that showed that. Rates of sadness are the highest reported in a decade for teens, with more than 40% of all teens reporting persistent sadness and alarming numbers reporting having considered suicide. And it turns out, you'll never believe this, Vic, that mental health professionals and other other folks in the public eye are now sure that this maybe did have something to do with school closures and the social isolation of pandemic policies, which took what was helicopter parenting and you know, pushing kids out of physical spaces and possible physical danger into online spaces and just accelerated that curve to the nth degree. So yeah. now we have a bunch of kids who are living online and not in the real world, and it has really bad effects. Well, so now it can be told. 
as a former president once said, sad. That wraps up another edition of Getting Hammered. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and you can follow me on Twitter at Victorina Mattis. I'm at MK Hammer. I'm right. I wrote about this actually for my Substack at mkhammer.substack.com, and just the idea that you know protecting your kids in this way is not going to result in good things. So the bottom line, as always, is just trust Vic and me. He knew about the self destruct button. I knew about the school closures and the Russia stuff. You know, it's all on tape. Trust us. Thank you for being with us and getting hammered responsibly. This has been a Nebulous Media Podcast. Okay.